There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police the arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird morning. Cop of murder. When you think of the places where serial killers dwell, chances are you don't think of the tropical and always sunny island of Hawaii. For most of us, we see this as an idyllic paradise where everything is perfect. Unfortunately, nothing gold can stay. And on May 29th, 1985, the first of what would be five victims was found raped and strangled to death by Hawaii's first known serial killer. So if you like your coffee hot, but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. On May 29th, 1985, 25-year-old Vicki Gail Purdy left her home to go clubbing in Waikiki, only to go missing somewhere in between. Her friends were worried, and when she didn't come home later that night, her husband, a helicopter pilot for the U.S. Navy, knew something was wrong. Vicki was a beautiful, blonde, petite young woman from North Carolina, but her friends and family knew that, in a pinch, the headstrong Southern girl could pack a punch. So for a bit, everyone who knew her thought that whatever danger Vicky had found herself in, she could probably fight her way out of. Unfortunately, this was a fight she could not win. After relentlessly paging his wife, on May 30th, Gary Purdy found his wife's car parked at the Shorebird Hotel with a local cab driver telling police that he dropped her off at the hotel sometime around midnight on the day she went missing. Later that same day, Vicky's body was found on an embankment near Kihi Lagoon. She was still wearing the yellow jumpsuit she had picked out for a night of dancing, her hands bound behind her back, raped and strangled to death. When brought in for questioning, Gary Purdy stated that, in his opinion, his wife's death was associated with her job at a local video rental store that dealt with porn and had a bad reputation. That two women working there had been stabbed to death a year before, and that his wife just must have been the latest victim of a porn-obsessed customer. Though this seemed like a major lead, investigators could find nothing connecting the cases. About eight months after Vicky's murder, on January 15, 1986, the body of 17-year-old Regina Sakamoto was found near the same lagoon. Regina had last been heard from the day before her body was found when she phoned her boyfriend saying that she would be late after missing her usual bus. It should be noted that research differs slightly here, with some stating that, while she had been missing since January 14, 1986, her body was not found until February. Regardless, much like Vicky, the young teen had been raped and strangled to death with her hands bound behind her back. And that's not where the similarities ended. Regina was petite like Vicky, was a transplant from the United States like Vicky, and her stepfather was a military serviceman similar to Gary Purdy. By all accounts, Regina was a kind, shy young girl who planned on attending a Hawaiian university that fall. With Regina's murder, Honolulu detectives knew that, for the first time in Hawaiian history, they had an unidentified serial killer on their hands. On February 1st, 1986, three young fishermen found the decomposing body of a young woman in Muanalua Stream, her body wrapped in a blue tarp and hands bound behind her back. She too, upon further investigation, had been raped and strangled. She was identified as Denise Hughes, a 21-year-old native of Washington State 
who had failed to show up for work two days before her body was found. She, too, used the local bus system to get around and, like Regina, likely met her killer on one of those buses. Though there were a few differences in the killer's M.O., mainly the location of the body, investigators knew she was another one of the Honolulu Strangler's victims. A 27-person task force was established four days after Denise's body was found, and with the help of the FBI and the Green River Task Force, a profile of the killer was created. They discerned that he was an opportunistic killer who attacked strangers who were vulnerable, like waiting at a bus stop or heading back to their parked car, and that they likely lived or worked in the same area as the attacks. Unfortunately, though, all odds were against this inexperienced task force. For one, this was unprecedented for them. Honolulu had never seen a serial killer before, and on an island that attracted thousands of migrant workers and a huge military population, it was difficult to keep track of all its residents, not to mention the tourists, meaning the killer could have quite literally come from anywhere. While they worked to narrow down the very little information they had, another body showed up near Waikali Stream. The victim, later identified as 25-year-old Louise Medeiros, was found clothed from the waist up with her hands bound behind her back, just like all of the other women. Louise lived in Waipahu, the area investigators had narrowed down as a place the killer likely lived or worked, but had gone to Kauai to meet with her extended family about her mother's death. She took a late-night flight back to Oahu on March 26th and told her family that she would get a bus to bring her back home from the airport. She was never seen alive again. Police immediately sent their female officers undercover to the Honolulu International Airport and Kihi Lagoon in hopes of catching their strangler. But by now, it was clear that he favored out-of-town victims. So they were unsuccessful. The fifth and last victim of the Honolulu Strangler was 36-year-old Linda Pesci, who, according to her roommate, left their home the morning of April 29th and planned on coming back later that evening. The next morning, the roommate got a call that Linda had failed to come to work, and realizing her bed was not slept in, called to report her missing. Now, this is where things start to get weird. A call came into police shortly after Linda was reported missing from an informant who said that a psychic told him a body was located at Sand Island. On May 3rd, this unknown man took police to an exact location, only to find nothing. But when police widened the search a little bit, Linda's nude body was found. She had been raped, strangled, and bound. Immediately, police set up roadblocks around the area so they could question residents about the murder. Though this failed to bring in a suspect, it did give them reports of a white or mixed-race man driving Linda's car, which had been found at a nearby viaduct. With very little to go on but his strange phone call, police arrested the informant on May 9th, naming him as a prime suspect in the case. When they started to talk to his ex-wife and former girlfriends, they described him as a smooth talker with a bondage fetish. More specifically, he liked to have sex with women while their hands were tied behind their backs. And his current girlfriend added that, on the nights that they had a fight, he would leave the home and stay out late into the night. Those days just so happened to line up perfectly with the murders. He drove the same type of car seen by witnesses and had a vasectomy. 
something that the killer had done that was evident when autopsies were done on the victims. After his arrest, this man was questioned from 8 p.m. to 3 a.m. and failed a polygraph test, but for reasons unknown, he was let go. They continued to follow this unnamed man, even putting out a reward for any information they could find. And two months after the arrest, a woman came forward claiming that she saw Linda with a man the night of the murder. She successfully picked him out of a photo lineup, but believing he saw her that night as well, chose not to be a witness against him. And that was that. No further arrests were ever made, and for whatever reason, the man who was named as a suspect and arrested for the crime was never charged. But that doesn't mean he was innocent. In May of 2018, a show called Breaking Homicide revisited the long, cold case of the Honolulu Strangler and named a suspect, Howard Gay, the name of the previously unnamed informant who led police to Linda's body back in 1986. In the episode, a former prosecutor all but flat out said that Howard was the killer. But according to him, the police lacked enough evidence to create a solid case against him, especially since the Honolulu Police Department did not have access to DNA testing at that point in history. Had they, this man believed that Howard would have easily been convicted. Howard moved away shortly after he was released and the murder stopped. The show went on to name another victim of the Strangler, 19-year-old Lisa Au, who was last seen just after midnight on January 21, 1982. Her body was found near Kapakori Road 10 days later, but police were never able to determine her cause of death. Officially, the Honolulu Strangler case remains unsolved to this day, and no other suspects have ever been publicly named. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on May 30th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.